The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Whiskey and Pepto Bismol Edition. It's Wednesday, May 30th, 2018. On today's show, First Reformed, it's being hailed as a return to form for writer-director Paul Schrader. It stars Ethan Hawke as a reverend in a small upstate New York church, grappling with God, his conscience, and the possible effects of global warming, among many things. And then, My Favorite Murder is a beloved podcast, and it is a massive, enviably massive hit in which two comedians retell stories from the grisly homicides of yore. It's funny, irreverent. It has a huge following. That following includes my daughter. Did we like it? We'll find out. And finally, Tucker Max has gone from toxic masculinity performance artist to woke bro, or so he says, we discuss with Slate's own Laura Bennett. Joining me today is uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Steven. Did I introduce you first by mistake? Well, whatever. We'll, we'll flow with it. Uh, and of course, Slate's uh, editor is Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello. Being introduced to second is uh, an indignity that I can't possibly stomach. Why do you always <laughs> mean that I've been insulted all this time when no, I was like, second? Why do we care? It seems like we should t- we should toggle. Except I guess the routine of the pattern is part of the show. But it's the Pavlovian appeal to our listeners of certain things, you know, obeying an inflexible pattern. Uh, happy to be introduced. Just happy to be here in any order. Paul Schrader is probably best known for writing the screenplays to Martin Scorsese directed movies like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. He is an auteur in his own right, uh, quite a good and accomplished film director. His latest movie is called First Reformed. It stars Ethan Hawke as a reverend at a small upstate church in New York, actually quite near where I live and where the Secret Fest is going to be. The movie follows the struggle of conscience as Reverend Toller as he presides over a mostly empty church and moves in the direction of total despair. Let's listen to a clip. I wasn't aware that I had offended. Jesus didn't want our suffering. He suffered for us. Mm -hmm. He wants our commitment and our obedience. Mm -hmm. And what of his creation? The heavens declare the glory of God. God is present everywhere in every plant, every river, every tiny insect. The whole world is a manifestation of his holy presence. I think this is an issue where, where the church can lead, but, but they say nothing. The, the U.S. Congress still denies climate change? Where were we when these people were elected? All right. Well, that, uh, in my estimation, is a beautifully selected uh, clip by our producer, Benjamin, uh, because Dana, a lot of this movie really is about how you interpret the earth. Uh, The movie concerns the growing environmentalism of this reverend as it mixes in with the sense of the world as either fallen, totally fallen, or potentially redeemable. Are we supposed to use up the earth uh, with a total indifference to the consequences because we really exist as souls? tilted towards the afterlife? Are we supposed to treat it with a deep reverence because it's God's creation? All of this is on the mind of Paul Schrader, a lapsed uh, Calvinist uh, who um, wrote an entire book about transcendence in film. Uh, This is a thought-saturated, sin-saturated, mood-saturated film, really more than a plot-driven one, hence my rather thin uh, uh, plot recounting. What'd you make of the movie? Oh, man, I'm so glad we're talking about it. I I loved this movie. It's I mean, I'm not going to say that there aren't parts of it, which I hope we can get into that maybe don't make sense or seem a little too audacious. But I just I love the audacity of someone late in their life, like Paul Schrader, putting this out there and making a movie that's so mature and it's reckoning with all of these hard things. I mean, it's people are writing about this movie that it's it's rare to come across a film that treats religious faith with with such kind of patience and precision and has theological conversations like that one you just heard, which is between Ethan Hawke, by the way, and Cedric Kyles, who is Cedric the Entertainer in the first dramatic role I've ever seen him He's in. He's terrific in this movie. Playing the the pastor who is Ethan Hawke's superior and who who hi- hired him, who gave him this job at the tiny historic church. Um, but in addition to reckoning with religious faith in a very serious way, it also reckons with environmentalism in a way that I've very, very rarely seen in films um, and and with environmental terrorism and just with all kinds of 
very contemporary topics. I mean, in some ways, this could be a movie made in the era of Taxi Driver, right? Like there's one mm-hmm. flip phone in it that you see the the Reverend using, but otherwise, and I guess he gets online once in a while, but it almost feels like a pre-digital, you know, even almost like a pre- I don't know, a pre-20th century world in some ways that he lives in, this austere church in the middle of nowhere where he's clearing the graves and preaching to three people in the congregation. Um, but but it's so modern in its concerns. And I just, I loved the the courage of this movie. And Ethan Hawke is also just gives a beautiful, beautiful performance. Even if you're not a Hawke fan, I say mm-hmm. give him a chance here because he really goes somewhere deeper and darker yeah. than we've seen him go. D- Jana, I totally, totally agree with that before pivoting over to Julia I just want to say I this is this points or Julia I'll just ask it in the form of a question I mean if nothing else this points in the direction of what Ethan Hawke can do with the remainder of his career he is I think just terrific in this movie it whatever else is true of this movie it cannot succeed absent a great performance by the person playing Reverend Toller and Schrader Gottman out of Ethan Hawke in my estimation no it's an extraordinary performance and there's aspects of the movie that with a different performance at its core would make the movie not work at all. Like just you completely believe in Toller's character, his agony and the set of decisions uh, that he begins to make as the movie progresses um, in in a way that I found really profound. I will also add a less profound side note, but I think Ethan Hawke is like the first teen idol he wasn't a particular teen idol of mine but he was like up on the bedroom wall of some of my friends or whatever that I've like seen get old one of the things that's interesting about cinema as a form and actors as a workforce is like that chance to watch uh kind of progressions of instances of human life or something like that like I there I had like a little side aura going of being cognizant of the, all of the things that Ethan Hawke has been and done over time but yeah, I thought the movie was was arresting and fascinating and maybe about environmentalism, but also seemed to me to be a movie that really speaks to the current political moment more broadly, like the sense of an impending disaster beyond what we've seen in the past and what responsibility we all bear for it and whether or not anything can be done about it and how one persists uh, in the face of it strikes me as a set of feelings that a lot of people have about environmental degradation, but also a set of feelings that some people have about Trump. And I wondered whether you guys read this as a, a Trumpian, a Trump era document. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, it could have been made beforehand. All of these issues existed beforehand, and there's certainly no figure who's supposed to resemble Trump in the movie. But um, but that quite, I mean, even in the scene that we heard, that sense of kind of moral, the moral imperative and looking back retroactively and saying, what could we have done, right, mm-hmm. to keep this Congress from being elected? What do you think, Steve? Did you see Trump in there? Well, I, th- I think the the general background of political hopelessness in the country now makes a movie like this relevant in a way it might not have been in 2010. Um, absolutely. But I do think that Schrader, you know, he was raised a hardcore Calvinist and it's been part of his work. I mean, the, the you know, the, the, the through line from Travis Bickle, the taxi driver, to Reverend Toller is very direct, especially as we get towards the end of the movie without spoiling anything. You know, he starts to trend in the direction of being a Bickle-like figure. And Calvinism is arguably the most theologically harsh religion ever devised by human beings. I mean, essentially, it is the doctrine of Calvin's contribution to Christianity is the doctrine of predestination. God has determined ahead of time which which, which ones of us will suffer eternally and which ones of us will um, uh, ascend to heaven, and there is nothing our earthly actions can do to alter it one whit. God is omniscient and omnipotent. It makes no sense to believe that we of our own free will and through our own acts can win his favor. Um, raising the question, why did he place us in this anteroom, uh, pr- you know, place us in time, within time, on earth, um, and to do what exactly? And, you know, of course, Calvinists come up with this crazy idea that material prosperity is a sign of our grace. It doesn't create our grace or enhance our grace, but it is a sign that we are saved. And this is one of the ways in which very early, you know, a proto-American capitalism plays out. This is why the Puritans were so prosperous and also so crazy. And it's kind of at the basis of our own psyche, which is why Schrader's own religious preoccupations have a general resonance, I think. And 
it raises the question of what the earth is. Why are we here? Are we here to, to do something in order? Are, I mean, there is a prosperous businessman in this movie who is, I think, absolutely the villain, almost the cartoon villain of the piece. And so in a way, he's saying one version of Calvinistic faith is utterly destructive. The idea that we might as well use up the earth. It is just an anteroom. We're going to escape it um, and uh, meet our predestined fate either way. Against which is Toller's belief, which we heard in the clip, which is that, you know, no, I mean, the sum totality of our experience of the universe as a created thing is God. And therefore, he is present in all things. And um, that's why. Toller's conscience becomes tormented is because he sees us literally desecrating God, not evidence of God or something God made, but God himself. And this is what begins to madden Toller and push him in the direction of extremism. And it's just weird to see a movie in which none of that is abstract. I mean, that's that's kind of an incredible achievement, no? Yeah, Steve, as you were describing the Calvinist atmosphere that hangs so heavily over this movie, I just I feel the need to name check the two cinematic ghosts who also hover over it and who who I think in a similar way staged these questions in a non-abstract, non-theoretical way. And that's Robert Bresson, who made Diary of a Country Priest, which this movie is a conscious copy of. Like it's so much like it. It's also about you know, a priest who has stomach problems and may be dying of them, who is an alcoholic, who um, who has anguished encounters with the people he preaches to in a very similar way. That figure in Diary of a Country Priest is obviously the inspiration for this character. And I think Schrader has said that. And also Ingmar Bergman, who wrestles with these questions in many of his movies, but specifically has a film called Winter Light in which there's a pregnant woman, as Amanda Seyfried's character is in this movie, who is having a spiritual crisis and who consults with a, a priest about it. So I just felt the need to, um, to to note that there's a whole cinematic history of this kind of struggle on screen, but it's very unfashionable right now. I mean, those two filmmakers are not influencing a lot of people's work. Those kind of questions aren't really prevalent in outside of, you know, religious circles. And so it, again, seems like it's just an act of, of kind of moral audacity for Paul Schrader to reintroduce that tradition right now. Yeah, Dan, I totally agree. Moral audacity, that, that is beautifully put. That's exactly what this movie exhibits. Uh, it goes in many directions that I think we should allude to in the main segment now and then get into spoilerifically in the plus segment. What do you think? Yeah, there's a couple scenes, which may be the scenes that, you know, we have the most reservations about. I'm not sure. One is the ending and another is a, a scene in which something sort of magical happens for the sole time in this very austere and wintry and realist movie. So I think we should not spoil either of those and we should save them for a plus segment. I would relish the opportunity to discuss those two scenes with you guys. Me three. Okay, the movie is first reformed. It's from the mind and tormented soul of Paul Schrader, writer director. Uh, Ethan Hawke, and we should have mentioned Amanda Seyfried is very good in the movie. Um, uh, Cedric the Entertainer is just terrific in a dramatic role. Uh, very, I mean, a, not a, a a beautiful movie that is nonetheless tough on its performers, and they pull it off uh, gorgeously in my estimation. I think this is three thumbs up. Okay, we'll talk about it more in the in the plus segment. Moving on. All right, before we go any further, Julia, uh, I'm sure that we have some business. Why don't we get to that? Yes. First, just a note that our secret summer getaway on June 2nd in Rensselaer County, New York has sold out. If you are still interested in going, we may be able to release a few more tickets when we get closer to the date. So keep an eye out on slate.com slash live. I'm also told by expert sources that the venue is indoors. So as with any trip, check the weather and make your preparations. But uh, we are not planning to stand you up in an empty grassy field so uh, the show will go on in case of inclement weather. Also, one of the features of this live show will be an impromptu book club. We are going to discuss Philip Roth's very short novella, The Ghost Writer, and his career. That's part of why we're not talking about his death on the show this week. Um, so if you're coming, dust off your copy, and we'll have some kind of interactive discussion about The Ghost Writer by Philip Roth and Philip Roth and his career during the live show. Also, we are going to be talking soon about a new-ish, actually fairly old format of content that is popular and prevalent. We will do a cultural close read of the Instagram story. So in preparation, we will be broadcasting the minutiae of our lives on Instagram stories. You can follow me at, at Ms. Julia Turner, M-S-J-U-L-I-A-T-U-R-N-E-R. -E you can follow Dana at... 
the high sign. At the high sign. Uh, and Steve, are you on Instagram? I have never used Instagram. My daughter created an account for me. It's Stephen underscore Metcalf. And you can follow me there, and I promise I'll confect some content on it. <laughs> Always How's eager to for- share. Confected content. Has that for bait in the hook right there? Love it. Can't wait for your content confections. Um, All right. Also, Summer Strut, it's that time of year. Send your struttiest song recommendations to us on Twitter using the hashtag Summer Strut or find our Summer Strut post on Facebook.com slash CultureFest and leave them in there. Please send us songs to strut to. And in Slate Plus today, we'll have that spoilerific discussion of the end of First Reformed. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and a great way to support Slate and the work we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, onward. My favorite murder is a super popular, wildly popular, it is hard to exaggerate the popularity of it podcast. It stars Georgia Hardstark and Karen Kilgariff, who are two comedians who essentially in front of a hot mic recount for one another uh, past uh, uh, crimes, murders, homicides um, in a jokey, slangy, um, very conversational style. And it's... uh, climbed the iTunes chart and turned them both into into superstars. Why don't we listen to a clip before we discuss it? So that night, the parents tuck their five children in to the kids' tent. Oh, no. Uh-huh. But... Just those words alone. Uh-huh. But three are teenagers. Three of the kids are teenagers, and then two are grade schoolers. So they're like, great. They're together. They're safe. They should be safe, right? Yep. They fucking should be. Yeah. And also, it's the 70s where not only are they together and safe, but some people would be like, yeah, this you can leave them alone for four months. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Give them a pack of cigarettes, a carton, maybe. You're all good. Yeah. So... Uh, that morning around 4 a.m., one of the teens in the tent, this Heidi Yeager, wakes up and notices that her little sister, seven-year-old Susie, is not in the tent any longer. And not only that, there's a fucking slash through the side of the tent. No. Uh-huh. And there's a hook hand hanging on the top of the... <laughs> Fuck. This is like... This is urban myth shit. Uh-huh. Okay. All right, well, Julia, let me turn to you. This show combines successfully, I mean, they've achieved rock star levels of fame with it, uh, you know, two of the most popular aspects of podcasting, which is true crime and comedy. Uh, I, that's a generic way of explaining the the nature of the show and, 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 and explaining its success. Um, it has to do with you know, the, the the rapport between these two hosts, right? There's nothing really else to the show. Essentially, everything is draped around their uh, conversational rapport. What'd you make of it? I am hard pressed to explain how much I detested this show and what an insult to its audiences I feel that it is. And I I listened to actually a lot of it because I was you know cognizant of the fact that so many people listen to this and love it and so i listened to a lot of it like i don't know 5 or 6 or 7 or 8 hours of it trying to comprehend what the appeal was and whether i just wasn't getting it or in fact everybody who does get it is also implicated in its badness and i, I my my personal jury is still out but so i want to start with the base level of complaint and then tack on what i think might be the appeal and then tack on why i think that even that appeal might be also <laughs> problematic Adding the fine filigree of hatred, my, my, my uh, that's that's you, Dana. You can you can you can cowbell in on that. All right. So, I took some notes as I was listening to the first episode uh, recommended by my favorite murder fan, Slay Culture Gap Fest podcast assistant Daniel Schrader. So, okay. So, in in the first episode, I listened to, uh, in which ostensibly the format is they like tell each other the plot of different different crimes that happened and then respond with uh, ejaculations of astonishment and uh, despair at the cruelty that humankind perpetrates upon each other. Uh, it, it was 33 minutes of like blather 
before the first crime was explained. And then it took them 13 minutes to explain the plot of that crime. So the ratio of like, I went home for Thanksgiving, driving on the highway. Oh, my gosh, all those things were shut down. Like, blah, so-and-so called in. Oh, I have a correction. Like, there were just 33 minutes of fucking vacuous nothing before they even described the plot of this crime, which I think was the a murder that took place in a Lululemon shop that was perpetrated by one Lululemon employee upon another. Um that when they get to the storytelling part, and I can sort of understand the appeal, appeal of this. I have a very good friend who's really good at recounting the plots of movies. And there is something very satisfying about hearing someone describe the plot of something to you, not with all of the storytelling finesse and filigree of someone like officially telling you the, the story in like a suspense building way, but just recounting the details, like reading the Wikipedia page to you of the thing. Um, but I didn't find... So I, I I get that that's the ostensible appeal. But like the way in which they recounted the plot was like confusing, didn't seem particularly concerned with facts, like got things out of order and like didn't bother to go back and fix them. And then uh, there's a two minute break and then there's like another murder recounted. I guess they each recount a murder back and forth to each other. Right. They each are supposed to tell one story per podcast. Yeah. OK. So. And the the pattern continues. Like, there's just so much banter and their particular brand of humor and camaraderie. I mean, I love shows that are all about camaraderie. Basically, listening to it, I was like, oh, fuck. Is this what mm-hmm. we do? We should Me shut too. ourselves down. <laughs> Me too. Mm-hmm. Like, we big, have yeah. to stop podcasting. I had a mirror moment. Yeah. Like, look hard in the mirror. Do you ever sound like this on your podcast? Or when I tell people, I have a podcast, do they think that's what I do? Oh, God. Okay. And then... All right. So then I read all these pieces that talk about the the power, you know, the, trying to d- talking to fans, talking about the appeal, people who've listened to more of it, trying to explain it, dig into it. You know, the the ostensible defense is that these women, you know, they're they're talking about uh, frequently about female victimhood. They're talking about um, and they do so with making fun of everything except the victims, having a lot of respect for the victims. They talk a lot about their own mental health struggles. People in the community have discovered each other, have um, sought out mental treatment from being in a context where people talk about getting mental treatment, uh, you know, that they're advocates for women who are abused and abased constantly in our society. So I'm like listening to more, listening to more, trying to find these threads. They are maybe extant, but pretty scant in the like blather to content ratio of these shows. Um, and then even if that is the ostensible benefit of the show, like they seem like the the sign off is stay sexy and don't get murdered, which is like kind of a joke, but kind of not. And when when they're defending the like sensible value of what they do, this this sense of like making you vigilant so that you don't get murdered and acknowledging the badness out there that's like out to get women. It's just like, no, like most people are not about to get murdered. If they are, it's not by like crazy serial criminals. It's like in much more pedestrian situations that I didn't hear them talking about. And like white, there's a lot of stuff of like acknowledge your fear, trust your fear. If you see a kid with someone who it seems like they shouldn't be with, like go with your gut. It seems like it's encouraging this like white female victimhood that is fucking pernicious and like not actually how people should go through life. I hated the show. I hated the show. (laughs) (laughs) Dana? I mean, I don't know. Julia just cleared the decks. I don't even know how to follow that. Yes, I also felt just this intense antipathy from moment one. And I also felt, as Julia did, this need to listen to more so that I could somehow get to what it is that has moved so many people about this podcast. Because, I mean, in the in the research, the, the most affirming, interesting, sort of, uh, I guess, inspiring part was the fact that there are large groups of women that feel inspired by this podcast and want to, you know, make Etsy art about the hosts and go to live shows and that it's created this community of people who can share their fears. That all sounds great, but how it actually comes from these unedited hours of blather, I, I agree that I just, I don't get it. And I, I, part of me also holds their editor to task and makes me really grateful for our editor and producer, Benjamin Frisch, who keeps us from being, you know, having inaccuracies and blathering on and talking for too long about our nail polish and our drive down Highway 1. There's just, there's a sense of entitlement to these two talkers, and I'm glad they enjoy each other's company. That's great. Every once in a while, and I mean every once in a while, like every hour or so, they have a fun 
funny joke or an interesting exchange or you you glean something from the story that makes you want to go and read more about it. But as Julia says, it's so unsignposted, their conversations. In fact, there are several moments where they laugh at the idea of research and kind of make fun of the dorky bookishness of someone mm-hmm. who would look yeah. up a fact. Like, let them do some research before their podcast. It, just, it also just made me mad as a creator of content. I'm sure, Julia, mm-hmm. you felt this too. It was just sort of like, I prep hours and hours for this podcast. I try not to come in not knowing shit, and I certainly don't brag about not knowing shit. And that just irritates yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, podcasting, as we've said many times before, is an earbud medium. It's totally intimacy-based. You are listening in, eavesdropping on a conversation with people who over time you begin to regard as companions. You know, we live in a heavily self-selecting world where you like one kind of person, you don't like another kind of person. And it's going to be kind of random whether you like a performed conversation in the podcast format, a particular one or not. And I suffered through about two hours of this. They love how too cool for school they are. Um, they they make someone like me feel like, and Dana, it sounds like you too, feel like an idiot for taking anything seriously or too seriously. They draw that line. You're there to step over it. This is for the people who love it, and a lot of people love it, including, I will say, my 15-year-old daughter loves these guys. And I have an enormous amount of respect for her tastes and and what she's attracted to. So I, I, there's a part of me that just doesn't want to gain, who am I to gainsay it? I mean, and I think the point is, you know, we do a performed conversation that a lot of people probably perceive as totally lazy, freewheeling, you know, uh, you know, fill in the blank, right? Annoying, whatever. And, and you know, yeah, ours is edited down. Yeah, ours maybe, require, you know, uh, entails like more research than theirs. But I, as someone who, would love to have hit the nerve that they hit or have gotten the response that they've gotten. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that it's just not easy to do, right? It's not, it can't be completely, I don't get it, but that doesn't mean that it's totally random that they were able to, through a totally performed, seemingly undisciplined conversation, gain a huge and really avid, uh, deeply avid uh, audience. Well, I mean, I don't know that it's so mysterious, like true, like, true crime in general is a huge medium and women are the main consumers of women it. are the main consumers are of it and they are generally an underserved audience in media and particularly i think we're an underserved audience in podcasting where the early adopters were you know like tech podcasts and uh typically more historically male domains like you know i i i don't know that i think the fact of its popularity suggests um greatness exactly but but i do think i mean that is part of what i was why i kept listening to try and figure out like what is going on there and i do think that they're the evolution of the show over time we listened to a couple episodes from the first year i actually listened to the last two one was a episode where they had paul holes i think is his name one of the investigators who worked on the golden state killer investigation and who was a surprise guest on the show and i gathered from the conversation had become like a idolized lion as that case has come into um into focus and then in that show there was this sense that like you, the community of online crime fans, can help solve crimes and prevent bad things from happening through your like online genetic sleuthing and general interest in cold case databases and that that there is some kind of galvanizing sense that you can help that that goes along with it. But I don't know. I feel like we got to get a we got to get a true state. Like if we all agree this much about it, then we need we need Daniel to come in here and explain why he likes it so we can at least reckon with that view. I agree, especially because maybe we, there's a crossover. Maybe there's a Venn diagram between our listeners and their listeners. It's and Daniel. It's just <laughs> Daniel. He's alone in the circle overlap. Daniel, come explain yourself. Help. Let me know when Daniel Daniel's suited up. All right, I here. am ready to go and explain to you why you're all wrong for not being murderinos. <laughs> Daniel, just... I just want you to I just want you to relax and just think of this as your second job interview. <laughs> of course. Of course. So excited. Why Let's all be aware that Daniel is, is embroidery needle pointing a zodiac killer symbol right now before us. <laughs> You've Send got to it. his hero his heroines. <laughs> um why do you listen to this? 
Um, it, it's fun. It's just so much fun. I think that Karen and Georgia have a really great rapport together. I followed Karen from another podcast of hers because she's just a really funny comedian and just kind of fell in love with them. Their dynamic. Yeah, it's horribly produced. Yeah, it rambles forever. But like, that's part of the fun. I think it's it lives in that world of comedy podcasts that are just people talking and having fun and yeah it's shaggy but that's kind of the joy of it so yeah i can just hang out with my friends for two hours while they talk to me about murder and i like play a video game or something and it also kind of releases some of the just like existential fear about like murder and horror and stuff when you can kind of allow comedy to take subtract all that stuff away from it do you ever feel, I mean, I think they actually do a good job at avoiding this, I think, because it's just not character logically in them to do it. But do you ever feel like they're um, trivializing or making light of murder itself? I mean, not in the sense that they mock victims. They never do that. But in the sense that they switch, they keep saying sidebar, and then they are suddenly talking about, you know, how the Toys R Us is closing or something. I, I don't think that they are um, because it's just... I, <sighs> I think that they are reacting uh, the way people just react. And so, like, yeah, they may need to just distance themselves from it and just kind of take the piss out of murder because either they can live with that fear of like, oh, my God, I'm going to get murder. Or, oh, my God, murder's just around the corner or just like, oh, we can laugh about this. And this is something mm-hmm. that we can enjoy together and kind of film, form a community around. Wait, can I? All right. So let me then mount a, a defense, Daniel, or or, or throw this as a kind of defense out there and see if anyone agrees your chances of being murdered are minuscule right they're vanishingly small it's essentially an irrational fear the, particularly serial uh, murdered like the ones right. that they talk about but the danger of being the the uh, the danger as a woman of being the victim of fu- some form of violence or sexualized violence or domestic abuse or harassment or street abuse is incredibly high and so whatever irrational fear about being murdered However irrational a fear about being murdered may be, it builds upon a totally realistic fear of being degraded in some way. And maybe that's the source of the therapeutic community that they formed around the show. I think that that's exactly it. I think... um and there have actually been stories that listeners have posted on the Facebook group and in other um, parts of the internet about how like their listening to this show has made them then more self-aware of their surroundings and like, oh, well, there's that person in the parking lot who's just alone and I'm going to like avoid them or I'm going to be more conscious of um, how I like handle myself late at night on this street. It's it's kind of gives them permission to be more aware and um, not as scared at the same time and also find other people who share those fears and can embrace and move past them together. I guess there is just something that strikes me as so misguided. I mean, like they should have a podcast about car crashes. That's like the thing you will actually get killed by and be like, don't get in cars. Like it just I I, I see your point, Steve, about the analogy. I mean, even the sign up, stay sexy and don't get murdered. Right. It's like you don't have to curtail who you are uh, to not court abuse and derogatory comments and worse from the wide world. Like I, I get that on some level. I guess there's like a defiant uh, let's just be girls in the face of despairness to it. But there's something to me so repellent about uh, this indulgence of the idea that like the, in your heart of hearts, you're a potential victim and kind of the the like the almost the glamorization of being murdered, like the the the, the, the like these women who were killed. See, but I feel like part of it is the glorification of the resistance to victimhood. I think it's like they are kind of taking control of their own lives in that sense of like, oh, well, I'm not going to allow myself to be victimized. I guess I just it doesn't. I, I mean, maybe that is the analogy where the show has its power. I just like I listen to so many podcasts that are just people talking who I enjoy their conversation. I just find their jokes to be actually funny as opposed to these jokes, which all seem like really dipshitty Internet memes that are like one time like they're just not original or funny but <laughs> yeah, I think that was my problem more than that i mean i you we could get into the overarching goal of the podcast and whether it's trying to solve a problem that doesn't really exist like people aren't resisting their own serial murder enough let's do something about that hmm. but 
But to me, the bigger problem was just they're not good storytellers and it's too long. I mean, I don't want to listen to any podcast that's an hour and 47 minutes long. That is too long. And the fact that they're different lengths and you don't know when you're downloading it, whether it will fit into your commute, I just find it like a, an unwieldy consumer product. Yeah, it has a horrible interface. Our show interface. might be different lengths week to week. <laughs> By a few minutes. But I mean, I feel like our show offers at least a dependable product. But once again, as I said, I'm thrown into a crisis of conscience about whether we should even be podcasting. And does my voice sound as annoying right now as one of those two women? Well, and I think it also points to an interest, like a way that you consume podcasts and think about them versus like maybe other people where you're like, oh, well, will this fit into my commute? Like, when do I listen to them? Whereas other people like listen to uh, I know that some stores people will listen to them like as they're closing someone will put on my favorite murder and the whole store will listen to it as they close or mm -hmm. things like that where it's like there are community listening experiences as well and sometimes you just like on these long hangout podcasts you want to hang out with them for you're longer right, you're so, right. like, and different people want different things from their podcast absolutely and lots of these murderinos the the fan groups say that they have written to these women to say that they listen while they fall asleep, mm -hmm. which seems to me, I mean, not even so much that I'm going to hear scary murder stories before falling asleep, but I'm just going to hear two really yammering voices saying the same things <laughs> oh, over God. and over. We sound like such terrible snobs. Incredible we snobs. sound horrible. It I don't like the version of me that doesn't like this podcast, but I tried so hard. I respect your taste so much, Is Daniel. it so wrong to want your storytellers to be good storytellers and use words well? I Is felt, that snobbish? You know whose behalf I felt offended on? Leon Nafok's behalf. Like, I was just like, oh my God, Leon Nafok spent like four fucking months, like day in and day out here every night, abandoning his like- Late into the wee hours family, of the morning. Like sending slacks at midnight. Like, oh God, the board just shut down. Does anyone know? I'm like retracking. Like, We should say, if people know, don't know, that this was in crafting the incredible podcast Slow Burn. Yes, about, the, about Watergate, right? Which I, was a which was a blockbuster hit, right? It paid off. Yeah, no, but just like the care of like what is the right way to tell this story so that it is an interesting yeah. story to listen to. Um, I just was, I just felt offended on his behalf. But podcasts are a medium, and anything can no, exist know, in that medium. I know, I know, yeah. I know. Of course, of course. Like in general, I feel very live and let live about stuff. And 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 as you guys know, I love to be the optimist and find the reason to love the the thing that everybody loves. But well, could not go there for but this. But mm -hmm. I will say this for this podcast. I mean, I don't see it as like a pernicious thing for it to exist. Like I don't want to ever listen to it again. But I, I I don't think it's bringing bad you know values or unneeded anxiety. In fact, it seems to be alleviating anxiety yeah. for the people I who mean, listen to it. I, as someone with a fairly young, still fairly young daughter listening to it, I wouldn't have picked these two to be her role models, but that's not the way parenthood works or teenagerdom for that matter. And they're not the they're not the worst. I mean, I, they're not toxic, toxic femininity by any means. And in some ways, maybe they're the opposite of that. I mean, you know, I, I, yeah, they I, talk I a lot about their mental health issues and um, yeah, things that they've gone yeah, through in child yeah. like childhood gets, and stuff like look, addiction. And she. Yeah. Yep. She gets a lot out of this. and But Daniel, I just want to say good luck in all your future endeavors. And thank you so much for coming in today. <laughs> Pack up your desk. Well, Steve. We'll be back to you next Tuesday. Stay sexy and don't get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Well, we're joined by Laura Bennett, director, features director <laughs> of Slate.com. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm very curious to know what led you in the direction of Tucker Max, a hugely successful online bro, self-styled bro persona, presence, uh, millions of clicks, millions of downloads, best-selling books, known mostly for a highly derogatory uh, default attitude towards women. Um, having a sudden change of heart and turning into someone who fucking loves me too, as he said to you, slamming his palm down on his kitchen table. And as you say, this is a shocking thing. As, as you write quite beautifully, it's deeply weird to hear that distinctive voice, the wrecking ball bravado, the profanity and brashness applied to a dinnertime discussion about the systemic abuse of male power. I think as someone personally who knew nothing about Tucker Max before uh, he read your uh, very good article, which I direct listeners to forthwith, it would be helpful um, maybe to me and our listeners for you just to describe who he was, what he did, how he became prominent, and how this change of heart is weird and uh, maybe even suspicious. Of course. Um, you know, I am trying to remember when I first encountered Tucker Max myself. I was really, let's suffice it to say, he was never, he never loomed large in my pantheon of cultural figures. But I remember around, he must have been like 2010, 2011, he had this movie coming out, this adaptation of his, uh, 
his book, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. And I just remember this peripheral awareness, this kind of, uh, you know, I felt like a, a, a nausea at the at the thought of him and I was aware that he was he was writing these books where he kind of demeaned and objectified women uh for fun like he kind of you know caroused around various college towns or whatever with his band of marauding bros and they would just like wreak havoc on female egos across America and he just was cruel and funny in that like vicious you know, fratty way that a lot of guys really took to. And I just remember registering him, feeling kind of ill at the prospect of him, not thinking much of him. And then a few months ago, I was reading some Times article. It was an op-ed somewhere. I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was, it was about kind of white male masculinity in the age of Me Too. And there was a kind of a footnote at the bottom that said, that mentioned that former fratirist Tucker Max had done a lot of Freudian psychoanalysis and was no longer fratiring. And so I read that and I was like, huh, my, the original framing I kind of imagined for this piece was the bro in exile and like this moment, like me going to talk to Tucker Max and figuring out what it was like to kind of reckon with his own past. And to be honest, when I got there, I realized he hadn't done that much reckoning. In fact, he was like enormously defensive uh, and uh, resistant to every narrative I had the that I sort of dared foist on him. And so it became a kind of different story, not about his reckoning, which in as much as it happened was really just about his own unhappiness. It was not about like the women he uh, mistreated or the one he surprise filmed in the act of butt sex without her consent which was something that happened in one of his books. Um, it was just about his own feeling that the culture had somehow turned against him, that he, as a white guy in 2018, was facing down a culture that was suspicious of his voice, and he was angry about it. Okay, so permit me a Michael Barbaro moment. Please. Okay. So here we have this guy, if I, if I have this straight, I'm now going to slow my voice down as if the record player is running out of power and just get the through line down here as well as possible. Um, but you know, here we have a guy who becomes a f- internet phenomenon by essentially being a misogynist. Milks that. Uh, at no point, I'm assuming, did his followers assume they were watching a meta Stephen Colbert-like tongue-in-cheek performance. I mean, they thought, you know, this is the real deal. This is a form of authenticity, telling it like it is, you know, anti-PC, you know, sincerity kind of deal. And uh, gets enormously famous, and something in the culture turns, and he decides to go through therapy. But what he's really working out, you're saying, is the prospect of losing the culture and the popularity, essentially losing the uh, validity of that kind of a persona in a more feminist era. Uh, And in fact, he's reckoned absolutely with nothing, and it's basically a load of shit. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think he's different now. He's got, he's more subdued. He's got a family. He's not interested in, uh, you know, getting drunk and and sleeping with a lot of women anymore. But I think the sort of general the the arc of what you laid out is 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 accurate and is clarifying. I mean, he started out being able to. I mean, I think the phrase I the the phrase I used in the piece was that he what he once represented, which was the horny id of a certain species of privileged American male held up without shame or filter, uh, that was a gambit that worked for a while. You could kind of tap in to those feelings, and now that's a that's a you know uh, persona that's never been more publicly reviled, and so. He, you know, was hugely successful selling these books to men who saw themselves represented in him, or, you know, found him to be kind of an aspirational figure. And now, I mean, the kind of revelation that happens over the course of the piece is that he's saying that there's no, it's, you know, there's not really room in the culture for that anymore, thanks to, you mm-hmm. know, social justice warriors or whatever. And that, I mean, the other, the sort of peg of the story was that he ghost wrote this best-selling memoir by Tiffany Haddish, who's this like beloved and crazily talented black female comedian, and that his kind of grievance, the central grievance that 
the piece kind of pivots from is you can only make offensive jokes if you're Tiffany Haddish in 2018. That like a white guy, Tucker Max can't you couldn't that he couldn't have written those profane and in his view like hilarious books uh, now because there wouldn't be an appetite for them. It's just it's strange to me that I mean ghostwriting a book with someone, co-writing a you know a memoir for a celebrity essentially requires a lot of contact with that celebrity. He and Tiffany Haddish must have spent a lot of time together, hanging out and talking about her life, and him phrasing it however he phrased it in the book. Do do you did you get any stories about that? Or I mean, how I how did. was it for her to work with someone who essentially thinks that she's only ascending because of her race and gender? Right. I mean, I think that's a fair question, and I think he would say he was very careful to say she's great, she's talented, she's so. She tells it like it is. His whole self-conception is, I'm a truth teller. I say what I feel, and that's kind of a, um underrated, you know, practice in the culture right now, and that she does that, and that's why we got along so well. I mean, they didn't spend that much time together. They spent probably a few days, a lot of hours talking, and she told the stories, and he kind of helped to shape and put them into words. Um, and... The one one detail I got that didn't make it in the piece that I thought was uh, was interesting was that uh, so I had to work really hard to get Tiffany Haddish's manager on the phone because I just felt like it wouldn't have been it would have felt lopsided to not have their perspective on how this whole thing went down. Um, And they, you know, for good reason, kind of didn't want to be attached to the whole Tucker Max thing anymore. They were kind of exhausted by it. But finally, I, I talked to him and he said, I mean, first of all, that he wanted to be practical and that she wasn't famous yet girls trip hadn't come out and here's a guy who wanted to do it and you know and that uh was part of why he it was just as simple as that it was kind of mercenary well, and, and then, who has written many 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 best-selling books exactly and, and knows how to tell stories tiffany haddish's book is now also a bestseller right exactly um but he and he said he was you know seemed pretty happy with how the whole thing had gone down a little bit exhausted a little bit kind of as you might imagine, eye-rolly and exhausted by the aftermath, like Tucker Max stepping forward and being like, I wrote this. This is a great book. Thanks to me. Um, right. It turned into a rebranding effort for him. I know. Exactly. But there was this one detail that uh, the manager told me, which is that a few. there's this very famous story that Haddish tells about having sex with this disabled baggage handler named Roscoe, and that in Tucker Max's first version, there was just, there were these like incredibly crass and cruel descriptions of his disability and that part of the sort of editing process was Haddish's people intervening to be like, hey, man, you really can't say that. Like that he is his still his sort of indomitable Tucker Maxness was uh, was hard to wrestle with during the writing process. But in the end, you know, it's a it's a brisk best selling book. You know, it achieved its aim. You can't say that it was crazy to have Tucker Max co-write it because look at it now. I mean, one thing that struck me reading your piece is. The phrase fratire, what about what he was doing was satire? Like, uh, that. that is the piece that I don't understand. And so many people read, read those books. I mean, I have friends who are, like, wonderful, good men who, like, love their families and don't surreptitiously film people in the act of butt sex and think <laughs> it's hilarious, to my knowledge, but I'm pretty confident about it, <laughs> who, like, enjoyed the books as – in the way that you would enjoy – reading about the escapades of any crazy character. Um, I know. I read them late into the night while working on this piece and was like, oh, my God, I can't stop. (laughs) I can't stop. I hate myself. So he has a voice as a writer. Uh, And I mean, it's it's it made me shiver. Like to imagine how I don't have children, but I was like, if I had a daughter and I was sending her off into like the bars of America with men like Tiger Max lurking in wait to like comment on the width of her legs, it's terrifying. But it also, I mean, in in his shamelessness, in his pacing, pacing, in his like bulldozer ego, it's like very hard to stop reading the brazen uncorking of this very real, very prevalent uh, male privileged worldview. I mean, you feel like you're you're really peering into the kind of dark heart of like toxic American masculinity, if you will. Steve, you represent white American masculinity <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> 
That's uh, it. That's the whole question. <laughs> That's a good segue. <laughs> I think we. I love that all four of us collectively hit the same brick wall at the same uh, time uh, when you said that. But I mean, Laura, one thing that really struck me just glancing over various Tucker Max materials is that uh, you know he completed University of Chicago in three years, I believe, on a scholarship. Then got a scholarship to Duke Law School. I mean, there's some suggestion that at the very least there's an intelligent person beneath the dipshit persona. Uh, he would love to hear you say that he would be so happy right now he'd be like it's about time that the liberal elites recognized how genius I am Uh, well it's about time someone like Tucker Max gives up worrying what the liberal fucking elite thinks about them I mean they could maybe get beyond that but um, (laughs) while they're selling millions of books but um, uh, that moment will never come I suspect but (laughs) additionally I, I, I recall coming across you know, he gives enorm- uh, enormous amounts of money of his, pro- you know, uh, profits to uh, animal rights causes. It, you know, is there is there some part of you that thinks that some part of him is not acting purely strategically in this pivot? I think that is a very good question. I mean, listen, I actually went out to Austin thinking... Uh, I thought this, I didn't want to like service his redemption narrative, but I thought, I was like, I bet it's going to be hard to sit across from this guy and hear him, you know, reckon with his own past and not feel sympathy for him. But I ended up, he's so defensive and so tiring to try to engage with earnestly that I ended up feeling less sympathy for him than uh, awe at his canniness and ferocity like awe is not the right word but just i i got him i feel like i walked away being oh i see how he could bulldoze any agent or book publicist or whatever because he is uh it's like engaging with a brick wall he will just like deflect everything um so i think he's a very shrewd self-marketer and like any shrewd self-marketer he pivoted i think you know i didn't just i he's not a terrible person he's not in the realm of Harvey Weinstein, obviously he, and I think part of what was useful about him is that he is, he, he's not like the, you know, I I don't, I'm resistant to put like toxic. I hate to keep using this overused phrase, toxic masculinity, but I'm, I'm uh, hesitant to kind of put it on a spectrum of like, you know, less evil to more evil. He's, he's, He's not an extraordinary, except that he influenced a whole generation of dudes and, um, you know, and wrote these very influential books and whatever. But in some ways, he's just like a, an average guy trying to work through it. He's just a much more extreme personality. I don't know if that's a useful uh, answer to your good and tough to answer question, but he's a he's a complicated character. The main uh, thing that felt useful for me in working through this piece was to use the this profiler essay as an opportunity to kind of rebut the central grievance that Tucker Max was airing about how in order to be successful, he would need to be Tiffany Haddish right now. And that earn, ten, uh, ended up being kind of easy because in the sort of course of a night's conversation with him, he worked his way around to his own rebuttal where he entertained this kind of fantasy of himself as a YouTube star in 2018, uh, you know, piping his antics directly into the eyes and ears of his fans, going out, getting drunk, doing the same stuff he used to do, and then just cutting out the middlemen, the literary douchebags, as he calls them. And to me, that really crystallized what a farce a lot of his grievances really are, because, of course, he could still be Tucker Max in 2018. It's just that the world has changed. It doesn't mean you can't sort of you know, circumnavigate the gatekeepers. All right. Well, to the uninitiated, Laura, you've done a great job of conveying who uh, Tucker Max is and in the piece as well as the segment, what an ambivalent, bizarre and fully 2018 package of uh, cynicism and performative toxicity this is. So anyway, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is a great segment. Really appreciate it. Thank you so very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Title of the piece, by the way, is Tucker Max's Culture War. It's up on Slate.com. Please find it. It's terrific. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Because I didn't get to this in our Paul Schrader segment and I really wanted to name check it, I am going to endorse a Paul Schrader movie written and directed by Paul Schrader that I've always loved and that I feel has really gone into the radar. It's Light Sleeper. Do you know Light Sleeper, Stephen? 
that I love that movie with De- Willem Dafoe. Exactly, Willem Dafoe, Dana Delaney, Susan Sarandon, Sarandon Mary yeah. Beth Hurt. It has a fantastic cast. Good it's the movie. story of it's 1992. It's the story of a drug runner. Willem Dafoe is a guy who delivers drugs for a big kind of crime conglomerate, and it's essentially it takes all all takes place at night, and it's his comings and goings to various sorted fancy places in in Manhattan, uh, delivering these drugs and sort of getting involved in the lives of the people he delivers them to. It's really really dark. It's maybe even darker than First Reformed, but it's somewhat similar in the sense that it's about this lone, well, and like Taxi Driver too, and that it's this lone troubled protagonist who's watching the world around him and kind of spiraling into a darker and darker place. And really one of Willem Dafoe's first kind of great standout performances, I think, and just a mood like like no other movie, just a, this kind of dark envelope of despair that's completely sealed unto itself. Um, it's it, it takes, it's it's hard watching. It's not an easy sit. Um, but I feel like Light Sleeper is a movie that more people need to know about. As a terrific film. I totally agree. Here, here. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I'm going to endorse something that I think I've mentioned on the show before, praisefully, but I've never fully endorsed, which is the book series Crazy Rich Asians by Kevin Kwan. It's a trilogy that features uh, an Asian-American girl who uh, goes home to Singapore to meet the family of her Singaporean boyfriend, only to discover that as the recent trailer for the movie that I saw noted and which put me in mind of this endorsement. Uh, he had not told her that he was essentially the Prince Will of Singapore and gets introduced to this kind of multi-country world of hyper-rich Asian people. Um, and the book trilogy is, and, and speaking of books that you can't put down and you're not sure why you can't, it is like an unputdownable trilogy and bit of like chiclet sociology uh, that I heartily recommend for summer beach reading. It's it's uh, interesting to see the kind of tropes of the beach read put in this context that they typically aren't. Um, and uh, I will also be interested to see the movie when it comes out, although I think it's like a travesty that it was turned into a movie and not a television comedy because it's this incredibly rich, like Game of Thrones level, fully realized world of interconnecting families and rivalries and secret children and car crashes and just like bananas inanity that cannot be contained in any 90 to, uh, to 100. Well, maybe there'll be a sequel. Is it only of the first book or is I'm it I'm sure there will the be sequels, together? but it just like should have been a TV show because it's, it's like an endlessly... Uh, it's, it's an endless universe. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, there's been a ton of interesting stuff written about the book and its treatment of Asian culture that many smarter people than me have put down and we can collect some of it. And we probably should um, find a way to talk about the movie when it comes out, I think, because it's it's interesting. But um, they're just like very, very, very good. If you want to like go away for a beach weekend and like ignore your entire family and read something a totally delightful confection i recommend this trilogy i love it bananity um i'm gonna this week endorse the shield of achilles by wh auden an incredible poem i think earlier on the in previous episode of the show we talked about auden in relation to the trump era he's a suddenly relevant poet poet english poet of course one of the great poets of the 20th century but you know really came of poetic age in the 1930s writing about fascism and this is a poem about about an anti a deeply uh, anti-heroic world um, and the uh, kinds of quiet, banal evils that flourish in it um, through complicity and essentially non-action. I just want to read a little a bit of it. Um, a plain without a feature, barren brown, no blade of grass, no sign of neighborhood, nothing to eat, nowhere to sit down. Yet, congregated on its blankness stood an unintelligible multitude, a million eyes, a million boots in line, without expression, waiting for a sign. Out of the air, a voice without a face proved by statistics that some cause was just in tones as dry and level as the place. No one was cheered and nothing was discussed. Column by column in a cloud of dust, they marched away, enduring a belief whose logic brought them somewhere else to grief. Then a little bit more, if you'll indulge me. Barbed wire enclosed an arbitrary spot where board officials lounged, one cracked a joke, and sentries sweated for the day was hot. A crowd of ordinary, decent folk watched from without and neither moved nor spoke as three pale figures were led forth and bound to three posts driven upright in the ground. It's just a, it's a great poem that captures the hell that we're going through, so I recommend it highly to people. Wow. 
All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com. We do actually love hearing from you. Or drop us a note at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. We have a producer, too. His name is Benjamin Frisch, a miracle worker. Our production assistant, Daniel Schrader, who is going to be imminently replaced. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf, and we'll see you soon. Just kidding. Daniel is a miracle worker, too. No, he must be right. We must be wrong. <laughs> it's, 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 it's impossible because the show is garb, but, but yeah, I don't know. Really something to think about, Daniel. <laughs>